0: Hi, it's Roger Green. This week, all our posted conversations contain completed contents from our year-end interviews, edited only slightly for flow and background noise. This conversation is with our podcast co-founder and former co-host, Stephen Harrison. In this conversation, which took place before release of the Phase 3 Maestro Nash results, Stephen describes the year as unexpectedly positive. The conversation focuses on the uptake of NITs as conditional clinical trial endpoints, which Stephen sees as a process whose momentum keeps growing and strengthening. In terms of drug approvals, Stephen anticipates one approval in 2030, you want in early 24, but more important, multiple exciting modes of action becoming available in the next few years. Just a reminder, Surfing the Nash Tsunami will have next day coverage of the two presentation days at Nashtag, posting the Friday session around 6 p.m. Eastern U.S. Standard Time on Saturday, and the Saturday session around 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Sunday. And here's Steven. In the next chapter of Getting the Band Back Together, Louise and I are here with uh, Stephen Harrison. Stephen, how are you?
1: Stephen Harrison.
0: I'm doing great. Good, good. And Yorn is on his way to Calcutta, so he's not able to join us. We're just going to talk a little bit about, as we have with everyone else, about the uh, highlights of 2022 and expectations for 2023. I think it would be fair to say that in general, folks have been quite excited that we've talked to about the past year and the year ahead. And Stephen, I think you hold a fair number of the keys to that in terms of things you've been working on and where they're heading. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, 2022 On a general impression of the year in uh, a minute or two, and then we'll go into whichever details about it you'd like.
1: Yeah, I think 2022 in the field of Nash is a bit like maybe the Moroccan football team at the World Cup. Unexpected positive, you know, all the way up until they played France. But I think if you look at Morocco, they were very happy with how they played in the World Cup and where they wound up. There have been a lot of pleasant surprises in the field of Nash in 2022. I can think of at least five out of six press releases that were very, very positive. Every phase two trial that reported hit their primary endpoint. And the number of companies jumping into the NASH space didn't go down. It actually went up. And now there are more big pharma companies in the space. And I think that's incredibly positive for the field. So just from a, a drug development perspective, 2022 is a good year. Of course, It's December 15th and we are waiting anxiously for the Madrigal data, which uh, would be the icing on the cake if that came out positive. And I'm very hopeful that will be the case. I think we all are hopeful that will be the case. It was good news to see that Intercept is refiling and they have a ton more safety data to go along with very similar efficacy data from before using a separate methodology. And so that was encouraging. I think we made huge advances in our methodology of interpreting Liver biopsies in 2022. While we still have issues related to the liver biopsy itself, I think we've gotten better at understanding its limitations and how we can mitigate that to some degree. I think we made huge advances in AI digital pathology and how that could potentially augment current histopathology reading. Look, just recently coming out of the Mosaic Conference that happened a week ago, Monday, Tuesday at the French Embassy in Washington, just amazing, amazing meeting where we had multiple divisions of the FDA represented, multiple stakeholders across the entire metabolic syndrome from cardiologists to nephrologists, endocrinologists, hepatologists, radiologists, biostatisticians, editors of the three leading journals, New England Journal, Nature Medicine, and Lancet, all present. There was a significant amount of interest in looking at developing clinical trials that tackle multi-organ system disease and get at multiple different endpoints number one number two very insightful information about the development of non-invasive tests to supplant liver biopsy and here's a little teaser for Nashtag 2023 we're going to have a deep dive discussion on that conversation that came out of Mosaic at the fireside chat on Saturday night in in Deer Valley coming out of that Meeting, we should have relatively clear goals for how we can relatively quickly move to a non invasive as a surrogate endpoint for subpart H approval. So, when looking back on 2022, I would say probably the most incremental advances in the field of NASH in the past decade. It's going to be hard to beat 2022 and 2023, but knowing how we're setting up the year, it's entirely possible that next year will be even better than this year.
0: It's interesting to listen to you say that, because when I go back over the year, month by month, it started on a real high NASDAQ. There were two hiccups over the course of the year, and it's really closing with a bang, right? I mean, Alda Furman was a bit of a hiccup, and that was like, what, April maybe? And then there was some perception coming out of Paris and Dublin that uh, regulators might not be moving as quickly as folks had hoped they would be moving. I think in the scheme of things, uh, the reaction to aldofermin turns out to have been overplayed based on what we've seen in some of the trials later in the year. And I'm going to ask you about the regulatory because I'm assuming that when you talk about mosaic and the deep dive, that that's really where you're going.
1: Let me say this about aldofermin. Aldofermin is a good drug. I think aldofermin absolutely works in Nash and on fibrosis. I just think the study design did not lend itself to allowing that drug to show its real capability. And it's just a shame that that's not currently being developed, but I would say that maybe that story is yet to be fully told. On the non-invasive testing front, I think we have to separate the biomarker qualification program from the division of hepatology and nutrition that approves drugs and claims for liver disease. And perhaps that might be some of the disconnect between what came out of Paris Nash in Dublin and what we're hearing from Mosaic. And we'll tease apart that a bit at NASHTAG, but the biomarker, the CDRH and the biomarker qualification program is a very rigorous program. Just like developing a drug for any disease is a very rigorous program. But if you look at the 2018 draft guidance published by the FDA on drug development in NASH, there is the ability to use surrogate endpoints that are reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit, not validated surrogate endpoints. So there's two different ways of looking at this, that you can have a validated surrogate endpoint and you can have a reasonable surrogate endpoint that could have a reasonable chance of predicting clinical benefit. So the way that I interpret what's coming out of the personnel that work at the FDA is if we can show data that is a surrogate endpoint, so a non-invasive test in this case, not a liver biopsy, that's also a surrogate endpoint. But let's just let's just look at non-invasive tests, and I'll use I'll use MRI PDFF as an example. If we could show that MRI PDFF change with drug treatment has a reasonable likelihood of predicting clinical benefit, then that could be used as a subpart H approvable endpoint, with the caveat that you would have to go on and show that it actually did lead to long-term benefits. So, we have data already present with multiple biomarkers whether it's fib4, fibroscan, mr elastography, elf score, ct1, ast to some degree, but you know, really is alt that has the 17 unit per liter drop. All of those have shown, maybe with the exception of, of AlT, um, all of those have been linked to outcome benefits. So Lpaz, Fibroscan has, MRE has, and CT1 has, MRI-PDFF has not yet either. But the way I, I look at this is, and we have to mine the data a bit more, this is why we're doing Litmus and Nimble and Nail NIT and Goldmine. But if we can show that these NITs are moving the needle relative to histopathology, and I mean NASH resolution and or fibrosis improvement or both, then I think that we've already established that NASH resolution and fibrosis benefit are reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit and have been approved as a surrogate endpoint in subpart H. If we can show that these NITs are doing the same thing, then I think we have a compelling story to take to the FDA and propose this. Now, their job is not to inform clinicians about clinical data. It's clinicians' job to inform the FDA about clinical data. One of the areas that it struck me at Mosaic that we have not done a good job, and I'll I'll say that I haven't done a good job in doing, is synthesizing the data that's been presented, the data that's been published, on these non-invasive tests relative to a reasonable likelihood of predicting a clinical outcome. That data has never been synthesized and put pen to paper and published. And I feel like I have my own charge is to get that done as quickly as possible. That's one thing. The second thing is there are still clearly gaps that need to be further enforced with additional data. And my hope is that at EZL in 2023, so this coming June in Vienna, that we're presenting data on the phase three trials that have NITs as part of them, looking at change in histology over time and where appropriate and where available NITs to outcomes. So that would mean if we could mine the regenerate data where we have some patients now on drug for seven years, could, is there a possibility to mine that NIT data, not only for histopathology change, but also for outcomes and not just liver-related outcomes? Nephrology, cardiovascular as well, I think are really important. And then could we mine the Madrigal data, not only from NAF1, but from Maestro-NASH? And could we look at the ACARO data? the HARMONY trial is done. Can we mine the NITs developed there to correlate with histopathology and have that? And I think with those big data sets and potentially nail NITs data, we could augment the work that's already been done and hopefully published by that time with additional data. And that would be, in my mind, The hope would be that would be enough to convince the FDA to consider an NIT. Now the next step would be that companies would need to develop their phase two B paired liver biopsy study with the primary endpoint not being histology but being the NIT, just like Madrigal did in their phase two, just like Poxel just reported out where MRI PDFF was the primary key, secondaries were histology. We we do that again. It could be MRE. It could be ELF. It could be Proceed 3. It could be anything. It doesn't matter. Even MRI, PDFF. You show you met your primary endpoint. You link that to histopathologic change, and you propose that to the agency for subpart H approval as the surrogate endpoint. That's how close I think we are.
0: So I'm thinking that two years ago, that sounded frighteningly close to the holy grail.
1: It is. You have to be careful which chalice you choose. But you're right. Choose
0: the wrong chalice,
1: you get the lion, right? Yes.
0: Or the bear. Luis? Go ahead, question, and thought.
2: Louise Campbell. I love all of that. And we've come a long way and we commented with Donna in one of the sessions this week that where we were when beta colic acid got turned down and how down we all felt at that stage about where we were going to how well we feel and excited we feel about the next year coming. Two different ends of the spectrum, really. But just on the evidence of NIT data, is this an opportunity for liver units per se to now get involved in? some of that data because units like Imperial, King's, certainly in London and these big units, they've been using FibroScan and the non-invasive technologies for a good 15 years now. Is there the opportunity to look at the serial improvement in those NITs in patients through liver care to see what the outcomes are there to also enhance the data? Because that's real world. Those are out of a trial perspective. So they're the all-comer patient that doesn't necessarily always meet these criteria for trial inclusion. So mining that type of data could be done. Would that enhance or would that detract from proving the point of outcomes for non-invasive technologies with the FDA? I think it
1: could help potentially. Yeah. I'm not sure that would distract much from that.
0: So where would that, Louise, as you asked the question, or Stephen, where do you envision that fits into the scheme of what Stephen's talking about right now?
2: Well, I think we see and manage patients in real world based on their improving liver function tests for year on year on year. We've seen it post the cures and the SVRs for hep C in that we've monitored their fibrous scans, we've monitored their liver function, uh, genotype 3 particularly. We looked at their lipid profiles as they rose afterwards, and that was a, a concern afterwards in the real world that wasn't ever shown in some of the early clinical trials. So we discharge patients on that improvement. That's an outcome. They're improving. We've got data that shows that we improve their liver health. We monitor the non-invasive, their cardiac functions improve. So there is, in the real world, liver unit data space, a lot of evidence that we don't don't biopsy patients post-treatment. We very rarely post will biopsy somebody once they've got proven cirrhosis. In the real world, we do monitor with non-invasive technology technologies, MRI, CT. We don't have so much access to MRI, PDFF, but I'm sure that could be gained. So using what we do in real practice, as part of a submission to the FDA because we're trying to prove the holy grail, which is not necessarily what we do in real practice. I wondered if mining that data, because we have hundreds of thousands of patients there. We did a very quick data registry during COVID. Lots of patients globally went on that to monitor for their COVID outcomes. And and I'm not too sure how far Nimble, Litmus, Goldmine and that cross those sort of boundaries into the real world evidence that could be gathered together on outcomes. Comes. The
1: way that this is just my perception of the way drug development is done in the US is that is more of a post-marketing commitment phase four type trial or real-world look at, at what's happening. But from a clinical trial perspective, you have to have defined endpoint assessments. And you're in a study, right? You sign a consent form, you enroll. I think the type of data that you're looking for just comes with thousands, if not millions of cases where drug is being used and you're seeing real world changes in outcomes. I think that comes later. I don't think that helps get you subpart H approval.
2: I suppose my question was, is the question, do we move beyond the biopsy because we can show that the use of multiple non-invasive outcomes do show clinical outcomes? That's a separate question to the clinical trial outcome. So it's moving this, just the question from the FDA about use of biopsy. Now the use of biopsy currently in the NASH clinical trials I totally understand and yes we would like to move that beyond the biopsy but evidence about other non-invasive therapies and techniques being a useful marker and proven against clinical outcomes for patients whether it's quality of life, whether or not it's discharged from care, whether or not it's improvement of cardiovascular function that to me is a different question. That is purely the question, can a non-invasive invasive technique be correlated with a clinical outcome? Yes, it can. We can gain that evidence. Yeah,
1: I think that's a payer question. The question I get asked all the time is, are payers going to mandate a liver biopsy to be put on therapy? Look, in real life, we don't do biopsies for NASH anymore. So I don't think the payer is going to mandate that we do liver biopsies for NASH. Not only that, but they're incredibly expensive to obtain so that increases cost already. So this is just me speaking again, but I think we'll have non invasive tests to to qualify people for drug based on the data that you just mentioned. And that data exists today, by the way. So we'll be able to use whether it's fast or a certain fibrous scan or a certain set of metabolic risk factors with you know, Fib4 or, you know, maybe we use the ASLD algorithm or the AGA algorithm or the ACE algorithm, which are quite similar in that you have Fib4 followed by scan. And if you're in that camp of greater than 1.3 with a KPA greater than 12, and then maybe that's the group that gets treated. If your Fib4 is greater than 1, 3 and you're indeterminate between a KPA of 8 and 12, you do additional testing. Maybe it's an ELF score, maybe it's an MRI. And if you meet those criteria, then you can establish treatment. But I, I think we're going to use NITs more from the payer perspective to decide who to treat. in a a different way than the way they'll be used, as you mentioned, with the FDA for drug approval.
0: So, Stephen, I want to come back to the drugs and the path that the drugs are on in a second, but I'm struck by this comment. What strikes me is that the third thing that goes on, right, is you put the drug in doctor's practices. And then a friend of mine used to say there are two trials that matter. One is the trial that gets approved, and the second is the trial in every doctor's office on their first five patients. So I'm listening to Louise, and I'm asking myself how much benefit that has on that third trial. Not just the payer, where I think you're right. I think they're not going to require NITs, but to what degree can we educate treaters on what they should be looking for in a way that relies on publication of that kind of data and therefore get them more comfortable, faster, a broader patient population? Because ultimately, that's where a lot of the ramp-up curve is going to come from, I think.
1: To me, I think if you get a drug approved, people are going to want to use the drug and, and they'll embrace whatever technology the payers are allowing you to use to make that diagnosis and to monitor response to therapy. So it becomes much easier, I think. It's a much easier story to have a much... Easier discussion to have with providers and, for that matter, patients directly. It's more of an educational thing. What is a fibrous scan? What is an ELF score? What is a FAST score? And to the patients, tell me again what NASH is. Tell me why I need to be treated with this drug, you know, and if there are side effects linked to it, why do I want to take this drug where I have this chance of having an adverse event? I mean, those are, to me, the discussions that are going to be had. How long do I have to take the drug? What what can I expect in taking this drug? As we develop the field, it's going to not just be so myopic that we talk about the liver. We're going to be saying you're taking this drug because it's not only helping your liver, it's helping your metabolic dysfunction. It's helping your glycemic control, your, your atheroscopy lipids, your weight, that sort of thing. So, and oh, by the way, with that help, we're going to see changes in the tone of your vasculature. Stiffness is going to improve in your ventricles and in your aorta. Your GFR is going to improve. And ultimately, we think hopefully your risk for extrahepatic malignancy will go down. But those are things that come in the future. I mean, I think initially it's going to be teaching patients about the disease, teaching providers about the diagnostic options and the drug and how it works. And then the payers teaching them about what kind of magnitude effect change with the NIT can be linked to clinical benefit relative to that particular mechanism.
0: That's great. And that makes that makes a world of sense. Um, I want to shift and spend a little bit of time with the drugs. We've been saying, or I've been saying forever and a couple of others that the second drug is really in some ways the one that matters because if one drug the decision is whether, but the, sex, the question becomes which on the second drug, and at that point, the assumption generally is people will treat. How likely, if you had a guess, is it you think we'll get to two drugs by the end of 23? Well, I
1: guess wrongly on the by who I thought would win the World Cup.
2: I'm impressed you're watching the soccer because I never hear you talk about American hey, college. I had football.
1: all my marbles on I'm the impressed USA We've team. converted
2: you, I did.
1: I thought they could be like the hockey team of the 70s, you know.
2: On second thoughts, he knows nothing about football.
0: (laughs) Most of us thought it would be heroic if they got to the quarterfinals, but I like your optimism, Stephen.
1: But I will tell you this about the World Cup. I've never really followed it until this year, and I'm actually looking forward to Saturday to watch the final.
2: Sunday's the final, and Saturday is the uh, underdog
0: game. Yeah. Croatia, Morocco for third place. I'm going Morocco. Yeah,
1: no, I'm I'm looking forward to the to the final, and I actually even know who's playing in the final. Which is the, the big step? France and, and Argentina, right?
0: The world citizen Stephen yeah. Harrison. that's yeah. really so impressive. You
2: got the big fatty liver disease South American population against the less fatty liver disease French population in the World Cup finals.
0: Or foie gras versus too much beef, right? Absolutely. I mean, a couple yeah. of yeah.
1: <laughs> but uh, you know, when you look at what the chances to having two drugs approved in the next year, having two drugs approved in twenty three is probably a bit of a stretch, just because at a minimum let's just say a beta colic acid gets approved. That will happen in 2020. We'll know whether it's approved in 2023. With resmederome, I'm not sure we necessarily, even if there's positive results, that we'll know it's approved in 2023. I mean, I'm just doing the math. Six months to file an application. And even with fast-track approval, the FDA has six months to render an opinion. So, you know, maybe it's Q1 of 24. So I, I think in my wildest of possible scenarios you have two drugs approved in 23 i think the reality is it's zero or one with another one to follow soon after in in the first quarter of 24 i think it's unlikely you have two approved in 23 yeah,
0: given given that the resmeter data hasn't that makes Good sense, I think. I think that sounds like a much more rational calendar.
1: But one other interesting thing to talk about is how many drugs will be in phase three development in 23. Well, you'll have Lani, you'll have Sima, you should have fruxafermin for sure. You might have icosabutate. It may not be out of the realm of possible to consider pegosafermin. In phase three. If it happens, it'll be late, late, late in 23. But I think for sure you'll have an FGF 21, a pan PPAR, par a GLP-1, and maybe a structurally engineered fatty acid if there's a positive phase 2B result in Q1 with North Sea's compound.
0: Which I think, by the way, has a lot to do with why Big Pharma is starting to bring money in again, right? You see more things actually coming far enough down the pike that some of them are going to hit. I
1: mean, I, listen, I'm super excited to see Mert jumping in, AstraZeneca GSK, Gilead's not given up, Novo Nordisk, all kind of really saying they're in it to win it. That's great. Fantastic. And I think that'll only be encouraged more if, if we can show that NASH is a druggable disease, right? That if we can get a drug across the, the threshold of FDA approval, I think the floodgates will, will open and they may not open very wide, but I think they will be thrown open if we can get to the NIT part as a surrogate.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And then along with that comes money. and Along with that, all the education goals you were talking about start to move a lot faster. So at the end of 2023, we have zero or one drugs approved. How far have we moved down the path on on the NIT thing, do you think?
1: You know, it it comes in fits and spurts. I mean, we go through periods where we're like depressed that we're not making progress. And then we get hit with this incredibly positive news. I think it's a bit of an up and down, but the general trend is a very positive. Positive trend. So like in anything in medicine, the incremental gains get bigger and more frequent the further along the path you go. We are at that point where we're beginning to see some seismic positive momentum. And I think that continues in 2023. And by the end of the year... I think we'll be having FDA discussions about NITs as a surrogate for subpart H approval. Whether or not they agree to that or not, I don't know. But that would be the incremental advance that has not happened yet that I think will happen.
0: Yeah, the conversation would be pretty compelling. I get that. Any other thoughts you want to leave our audience with before we depart for the day?
1: My thought would be continue to listen to the podcast because it it just continues to get better and better. And it is the... Conduit for state of the art, up to date information in the field of Nash.
0: Thank you, Stephen. And um, we're only we're only here because of you in the first place. I, I think we're kind of one of your quasi derivative spawn at this point. Hey, eh?
1: well, you guys have done a terrific job with it. And I just I hope uh, we just continue to reach more and more listeners and becomes even more of the vernacular for people that that work in this field.
0: We were number two in Oman last week. I know you like facts and figures like that when they I, show I do. up.
1: If we could just get number one in Qatar during the World Cup, that would be phenomenal.
0: Qatar has fallen us slightly off the map, but we'll see what we can do about that. And we will see you on Monday to record the hashtag preview, which I know lots of people are tremendously excited about. Sounds good. Thank you, sir. See you then.
1: We hope you have enjoyed this discussion. Please join us again later tomorrow for the full conversation between Yarn, Roger, and their guest, Ian Rowe, here on the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast.